ain't nobody listening to this shit. All right, how's it going, guys? This is uh, Steven and Chick, and uh, another episode of Beyond Our Service. This is actually going to be a bonus episode. We are here doing our first interview with the great, legendary Carl Munger. So Carl Munger, just to give you a heads up of who he is or what he's about, he it was a ranger in the 1st Battalion, 75th Ranger Regiment. He is an author of a book, Common Sense Transition. He's a husband, a father, and a grandfather. He is someone who has made a great impact on me and my life personally, and he is the founder of Gallant Few. Welcome, Carl Munger. Thank you, gentlemen. Nice to be here. Glad you could make it, man. Well, Steven's on my board, so when he said he wanted me to be on a podcast, I really didn't have an option. That's also true, Uh, yes. You you definitely could have said no. No, you could have said no. we appreciate you being here. (laughs) (laughs) It wouldn't have mattered, but it would have. You could have said no. Well, well I guess we'll just start right into uh, what made you originally start Gallant Few back in 2010, I believe. Yeah, I knew someday this guy named Stephen Barber was going to need some help transitioning, so I wanted to get the groundwork laid before that. Amen. That's incredible foresight. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this is a this is a very long story. So you know, I don't know how much time we have on the podcast. I think I told Stephen the first one you guys did was too long. So you know, I don't want to be contributing. Man, to... so this is a bonus episode. We don't care. You just go as long as you want. <laughs> if we have to edit it down, we'll do it. I ain't worried. Awesome. About it. Awesome. We got like, like two it. listeners anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Was is one? Am I one of the two? No, you've only listened For to the first, first episode, episode at least. <laughs> <laughs> it's me and him, no, basically. So it, That's it. That's all we got. You each listen to your podcast, so you have two yes, listeners that I like. Hundred percent. No, I know how that goes. I've been I've been in that position. With the very first podcast I did back in 2010 was a complete goat rope. It was it was a mess. <laughs> I, I I actually I was wearing headphones. And uh, my home phone rang and I reached over to kill the home phone and like pulled the microphone out <laughs> and the headphone jack out and I'm trying to recover. And it was, it was back in the early days of podcasting. That was quite an experience. No, I, I uh, everything that's come into what Gallifrey is, it's all based on lessons learned. Uh, the military talks about, or at least in the army, we couldn't turn around without doing an after action review on anything. And and so as, as I've gotten into my aged and advanced years, I kind of started looking back at things that made a difference to me. And it, it seems like there's been a common thread. And one of the common threads to that is, is mentoring, one-on-one involvement, overcoming adversity. Uh, one of the common threads is community. Uh, one of the common threads is service and trying to find purpose. And you know, the, uh, one of the things that I have observed in 11 years now professionally doing this with a nonprofit and then for well 15 years before that as i left the military um, i observed that there seems to be a pretty predictable downslide for veterans that have difficulty transitioning and it starts with not really knowing what they want to do and then they kind of fall into using va benefits because they don't have a plan or it's hard to get a job 
So they're relying on GI Bill to pay the bills. And uh, a lot of times, because there are other life things that happen, then they either fail a class or they drop out of class and then the VA wants the money back and then it starts to snowball into this big issue. And um, maybe the VA, I think the VA is a little better now, but it's still jacked up and it takes a long time to get into it, especially if you, if you serve in a unit that is super physically demanding on your body, like being a Ranger Battalion, for instance, because while you're in that Ranger Battalion, you're not going on sick call every day and talking about your knees and your back and your hips and things that might bother you. And you certainly are not going to talk about anything that's going on in your head, maybe having trouble sleeping or self-medicating or that kind of stuff. And so none of it gets in your records. And then down the road, when you ask the VA to provide care for your back or your hips or things like that, the VA is like, you know, there's nothing in your medical records, not our problem. And, and so, that can throw a veteran into feeling like they are, um, they're whining to the VA, you know, so then they don't want to go, they don't want to go talk to them because they ask them to cover something that they didn't want to talk about in the military. The VA says no, then they, then they really shut down, right? So um, that, that combination of not really knowing what they want to do, they having potential financial difficulties, getting screwed around by the VA, uh, at some point, they probably start self-medicating and drinking a little bit too much. And that adds to money problems and it adds to relationship problems. And they start to retract and they, they start to isolate. And when that significant other says, I am done with this, then that's like red star cluster time. That's when that veteran is thinking about taking their own life. And it's very, very predictable in my opinion. And so where that goes into the way Gallup Hughes started. My grandfather, my father's side, was a World War II Korea Vietnam veteran. Got a CIB in the Orient uh, as the World War II was ending. And he uh, ultimately died. He retired from the military as a sergeant first class. He ultimately died alone in a men's shelter in Denver where he was a drunk. And my biological father told me years later that all the possessions he had were in a shoebox. He went to pick his stuff up and all fit in a shoebox. Um, he, because of his alcohol and temper and, and issues, I'm, in retrospect, I'm sure it was post-traumatic stress, probably not recognized or treated by the VA. Um, that manifested itself into a rift between he and my father. My father also became an alcoholic. My father retired from the Army as a sergeant major. But he walked out of my family when I was four. Had a two-year-old sister. My mom was pregnant. And, uh, and so I know what it's like to, to really go through desperate times because single parent, my, mom, my, my dad was a freaking deadbeat. He didn't, he didn't uh, pay for anything. Uh, and yeah, I know there's two sides to every story. And I'm going to come back to this in a minute because there's kind of a happy ending to this, believe it or not. But um, he was not present in my life. My mom's father, my grandfather became kind of a de facto father, but he's my grandfather, right? He's way older than me, and so I can't go play golf and play catch and do a lot of the kind of things that a kid should do with his dad. So um, as I'm struggling through all of this, a brand new program started. This is, I'm gonna give my age away, this was the late 60s, and it was then called Big Brothers. And a police officer told my mom that this program they felt would keep 
kids out of trouble and that I was headed for trouble and that uh, I probably needed a big brother. So I got matched with a, an attorney named, named Dave. And the first time Dave came to pick me up to go do something, he was driving a white Stingray 68 convertible Corvette. Nice, nice. And uh, yeah, so it made quite an impact yeah. on me. <laughs> and years later, I find out on my sisters who they didn't have a big sisters program then. But they, they felt benefits from him interacting with our family uh, as well. So I, I love that program. But that kind of helped me see that there were things that I could start to pick in my life, but I still did a really crappy job of making those selections. And, uh, and so as I'm, because I, I really didn't have a father figure that really could guide me. My mom remarried when I was 12, got a stepdad who was a, a World War II veteran. So he was uh, on the older side. He was older than my mom by about 12 years. And he was a great guy, but we never, it was never a father-son thing. I mean, I called him dad, loved him to death, uh, didn't kill him. So let me be straight up about that. Okay. I didn't love him to death, okay. but I really loved the guy. <laughs> and and uh, save. after my, my folks got, that took a weird turn, didn't it? After my folks got, and I call my folks because he adopted me. My yeah, okay. biological name was Vodder and my, my stepdad's name is, is Monger. So I got... Uh, adopted. So now my legal dad was Richard Monger. And um, when I when I was old enough to volunteer with then Big Brothers Big Sisters, I volunteered as a big brother. And so I got to experience being mentored as a kid. I got to experience mentoring a kid. I got to see kind of what happens in the agencies. And then many years later, when I left the Army, after I had been out for about six years, I had the opportunity to go back and run the agency I'd been a kid in for a couple of years. So I, I got to experience it from a, a internal nonprofit running the agency kind of thing. So all of this mentoring stuff has kind of been percolating around in my head forever. Um, yeah. when, when I left the military, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, except I wanted to get away from the military. And Heard that, yeah, there sounds are, very familiar. It's, it's a very common thing that something that was really, really close to you can be something that you avoid like the plague because you're embarrassed uh, or hurt or disappointed in yourself or there's a million, a million things that can happen, especially when you're in a high-risk unit like a Ranger Battalion because tomorrow you could get, have a catastrophic injury uh, in a training event or on a jump and then you're out or you could have a boss that just hates your guts and you're out or, you know, that you could have a DUI and you're out. And most of the Rangers that I've talked to, and, and when I say Rangers, it even still, it, I think pertains to anybody, any branch of the military. If they didn't stay in for 20 years and retire, there's a reason for that. So why did you get out? Yeah. And most of them don't say, well, because I had a plan, I was going to go to college and be a doctor. Most of them are like, my chain of command sucked, or I got hurt, or my buddy got killed, or um, there's no way I'm going back to Afghanistan. Whatever it was, it was a negative experience that they want to put behind them. But then when they leave, they want to be connected with that experience again so bad that it starts jacking with their head, but they can't talk to anybody about it because they're embarrassed about what happened, right? So mm -hmm. in, in my case, in uh, October 29th, 1992, an Air Force Black Hawk crashed into the Great Salt Lake doing a special operations rehearsal training exercise. 
and it killed the first and third ranger battalion commander and uh, an air force special tactics squadron commander so three u.s socom battalion commanders all on the same black hawk which was a big no-no but it happened and a ranger first sergeant two ranger rtos and uh five other uh combat controllers Jeez. catastrophic 12 out of 13 on board died and uh and the battalion commander I was very close with because I was his S1. I was his personnel officer. And so yeah. every day he and I would interact and I would help him with his workload and he would give me guidance about, you know, what things to do. And we got to uh, we got to look at and hire a lot of very, very good officers to uh, to serve within the unit. One of them was Steve Bannock, who was the third ranger battalion commander on 9-11. Uh, another one that I in processed was uh, then Captain Joe Votel. Yeah. And, uh, and Joe was the Ranger Regimental Commander on 9-11. So I, I developed these friendships with these guys, a lot of mutual respect and, and you know some difficult things that we all went through together. Then we had this catastrophic crash. And after three years of being in a Ranger Battalion and being promised command of a Ranger company, I was supposed to command B Company 175 after Kurt Fuller, who retired as a two-star general a couple of years ago. <laughs> um, the incoming battalion commander was a, an officer that I'd served with before in the battalion, and we were kind of like oil and water. We just really didn't mix. And he had one of the luxuries about being a Ranger Battalion commander, and it's awesome if you're in that position, is you get to pick. And if you don't want somebody to be a company commander for you, all you have to do is say, I don't want you to be a company commander for me. I'm going to pick somebody else. And so I'm left standing out in the hallway going, what the hell am I going to do now? Uh, I got two OERs, one from... Mick Bednarik, who is the interim battalion commander, and one from Ken Staus, who died, that said I was going to command a ranger company. I don't command a ranger company. I'm thinking I'm never going to command a battalion. I mean, you want to talk about kiss of death for an infantry officer on your evaluations. Sure. That's bad. So I, um, so I got butthurt and went home and talked to my starter wife. And we agreed that you know, we didn't like being jerked around so much, so, so maybe we should get out. All my obligations were done. I've been in for 10 years. I had no, there was nothing contractually that held me in the army. I go into the battalion headquarters and I open up the daily message book and the department of the army had just reopened the voluntary separation incentive for captains in my year group. There was a two week period that I could decide if I wanted to get out and I could get uh, an annual payment that was some mysterious formula, but it basically worked out to 20 years of $10,000 a year. So it's $200,000 to get out. Or I could take a lump sum of like 45 to get out, which I should have done, but I didn't. I took the annual payment. And um, within, I mean, back in those days, Rangers wore high and tights. I almost have one now, but not quite. But Rangers back then wore high and tights. I was thinking so it, here but I, I wasn't going to say it. Ranger, you were thinking how no. good looking I am. Yeah, you're right. It's <laughs> 100%. That's why I'm not wearing headphones, because I want you to have the full experience. Thank you for that. But, um, yeah, in time. So I, I go back to Wichita, Kansas, where, where one of the big things was now I'd been an infantry officer for 10 years, stationed in Hawaii, so away from family, in a Ranger Battalion, can't see family. And I'm like, I want to be somewhere in the Wichita, Kansas area so my kids can know. my. They had two full sets of great-grandparents. Actually, they had, anyway. More than I had when I was growing up, because I never knew any of my great-grandparents. And here they've got two or three sets of great-grandparents that they can have a relationship with. And so I said, I'm going to bite the bullet. We're going to go back to Wichita. I'm going to figure it out. 
and I got back to Wichita and I did not fit in. Um, I had, had a job interview with a huge oil and gas privately held company there and their human resource director said, well, you know, you army officers are real good at following orders and doing what you're told, but here at this company, we need people that have initiative, think outside the box and don't need constant supervision. And so, you know, what good do you Lord. do but just pack your stuff up and leave? Yeah. Because you get, there's nothing that you can say to that, but that was the attitude. And still to a certain extent, there's an attitude like that with civilian employers that, that they don't understand the value that you can bring to them. If you don't have the right degree or the right whatever, number of years experience, then you're no good to them. And I'm like, get out of your chair. I'll come sit over there and I'll do your job because I was a battalionist one. Give me two weeks and I'll do your job better than you're doing it right now. But it doesn't work that way in the civilian world. So, so I go packing now a little desperate. What am I going to do for work? And uh, I end up taking the first job that was offered to me that was a family friend that knew a guy who was in the insurance business, who knew a guy that ran a seven up bottling company that needed a safety and training director. Well, I could do that job. I know I can do that job. So I'm sitting down with this old guy and he was actually a veteran from the Korean War era. I don't think he ever actually went to Korea, but he was a Korean War veter era veteran. And uh, when he found out that I was an infantry officer, he was very interested in that. We talked for a minute and he said, so how much would it take to hire you? And I was I was a pretty savvy guy, right? Because I had done my budget stuff. I knew I had this $10,000 every year and it, I projected the kind of the house that we wanted and some other stuff. So $25,000 in 1993 was the amount of money that I needed for us to be okay. And so I said, $30,000 and he said, done. And now I'm like, damn it, I should have asked for $40,000. <laughs> And, uh, and so I went to work for a company really not understanding the civilian, the way things work in the civilian world. And so I went into the safety and training job like I was a, a captain in a ranger battalion. And if there was somebody on the bottling line, to include the vice president of production that wasn't wearing their safety goggles or that were smoking in the warehouse or whatever, I would come down on them. I couldn't make them do push-ups, but I could make them feel a little small. Sure. And uh, in, in a short period of time, nobody liked me. And uh, I think they actually gave me the nickname Deputy Dog. <laughs> and uh, and it, but after a year, they gave me a thousand dollar bonus because I had cut their loss rate tremendously. And so the insurance company was very happy with us. And the owner was happy with us because his insurance rates were dropping. And I was absolutely miserable because everybody hated me. And I didn't feel it, going from a Ranger Battalion to telling some jack off in the warehouse to put his safety glasses on and that's my life. I'm gonna be teaching people to put safety glasses on for that just, that it wasn't working. And, yeah. and uh, I was getting very frustrated and I ended up within two years, I was running all the warehouse systems for this for Kansas and half of Colorado. And which is an indicator of what a veteran can do when they leave, right? They bring this experience, they know how to do this stuff. We can organize, we can make things happen. We also step on a lot of toes when we do it and make some enemies. Sure. And I didn't have any of those. I didn't have any of those rough edges smoothed out yet. And uh, so I was headed to a point where I was going to quit or I was going to get fired because uh, just things were not working out right. And a buddy of mine named Bill reached out to me. And, and I know you asked me about how the organization started, but this is all important to this. This is why I'm telling you the whole story. No, this is great. Um, he reached out to me and, and he said, um, he told me he was getting promoted from 
a construction equipment sales guy and a case construction equipment dealer is going to be promoted to branch manager. And he wanted me to apply to replace him as a salesman. Well, Bill and I went back before pre-Army. We knew each other when we were in high school and, uh, and hung around a lot. And in the Army, we were both stationed at Fort Lewis together. So we saw each other, you know, kind of socially there and, and out in training exercises. And then he went, Mac knew what he wanted to do. He's Bradley commander in Germany. And then he got out and he pursued this construction equipment business. He, because that was his plan. He, he knew that's what he wanted to do. And he's still doing that stuff today. Well, when he wanted me to come be a salesman for him, I'm thinking, man, I've bought a car before, so I don't like salespeople. And yeah. I don't know anything about construction equipment. I've never run a backhoe or a loader or anything like that. And, uh, and it just sounds like a recipe for disaster for both of us. And he said, if this is something that you would like to try, he said, I can teach you the sales techniques and I can teach you the arm, the, the, the uh, iron, but I can't teach integrity and the ability to learn and discipline. And you've demonstrated that repeatedly in the army. So if you bring those attributes, I'll do the training and we'll be successful. And now this was, I want to say this was 1995, 95 or 96. And the first year I was in construction equipment, I made a hundred thousand dollars. And, nice. uh, that was, that's pretty phenomenal. Yeah. I got, uh, recognized by the company as having the highest profit margin on used equipment sales of, of guys that have been there for 30 years. But again, it was, it, there was no purpose to it. I was, I was making a lot of money, but what, what difference was I making? You know, I'd have to go in and, and kiss this old farmer's butt for two hours, hoping that he would buy a skinster loader from me. And I was kind of miserable at it. So I, uh, I led, uh, Another organization, a headhunting organization, reached out to me and they wanted me now. I demonstrated sales. So they wanted me to sell um, IT stuff. So I went to work for a big public company selling uh, um, design software and data management stuff and hated that because now I'm making more money, <laughs> but still it's, there's, no, there's no purpose to it. And, uh, and so well, I left that job. Bill calls me back up and says, he has now left this this small dealership and he's gone and now he's a district manager for United Rentals. And he wanted to know if I would come run a United Rentals branch. So I ran one of the largest United Rentals branches in the country for a couple of years. This is when when 9-11 happened. I was a United Rentals branch manager in Wichita, Kansas. And I was out on a job site listening to NPR when the towers were attacked and immediately went to Bill Cooper's house and we sat down in his living room and we watched the towers come down and we knew that things were going to change. So over the next six months, as I saw, well, first off, within, within a month and a half, somebody parachuted into Afghanistan and it was then Colonel Joe Votel and Lieutenant Colonel Steve Bannock, the two guys that I had known very well in 1st Ranger Battalion. And, uh, and I'm, when I see it on the news, I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. I w if I did not, if I'd have stayed in, I might have I been there. Yeah. And so I was still in the Army Reserve system, although I was inactive. I'd had back surgery by then, and, and uh, I was still in the system. So I sent an email, joseph.votel at army.mil, and it hit him. 
And hmm. he answered me from Afghanistan a couple of days later. And I basically, the email said, I'm proud, I'm jealous, wish I was there. Everybody here is, is super grateful. You know, please pass the word on. And he ended up inviting me to come in 2003 to Benning for the Ranger Regiment Change of Command. And so when 9-11 happened, I'd been out for eight years. Now it's 10 years since I had been out when I go to the Ranger Rendezvous. And I go there like with this big bad lump in my stomach because I didn't, I didn't know how I was going to be received. Yeah. Because I've been the guy that when things got bad and I got crosswise with a boss, I just quit the army. That's kind of the way that I looked at it. And it, it, and, it, and also I should go back to, I left the army in July of 93. You know, what happened in October of 93? There's a story. Black Hawk Down. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Black Hawk Down, Somalia. So I knew all of the officers that were there. And uh, it was one of those, did I make the right decision? If I'd swallowed my pride, could I have, could I have helped? Could I volunteer to be a plans officer? Could I have made a difference? Um, when, when I got back, when I, when I got back to Benning, I walked up to the back of, if you've ever been to a big change command like that, big parade field, they've got all these dignitaries, there's a band playing. And in this case, there's Rangers standing where you come walking up and they have clipboards. And one of the rangers looks at me and says, sir, what's your name? And I said, my name's not on that clipboard. I'm just going to go over here at the back of the bleachers and, you know, not going to bother anybody. And he's like, sir, what's your name? And so I told him my name and he goes, oh, here, follow me. And he took me to the front row, dead center, right where the generals and the post commander and all the dignitaries were. And there was a seat reserved for me that, that Joe had set aside. And afterwards, I got a chance to talk to him and and what the, the biggest thing about that was, was it said, you're still, you're still my friend. You're still part of the team. You're still part of this community. Yeah. And, and that was huge in making me reconnect with the community because I didn't, if I had, uh, if I went to a social engagement back in Wichita, Kansas, and somebody said, Hey, I heard you were a ranger in the army. I wouldn't want to talk much about it. Or if they said, hey, I heard you were in the Army, what'd you do? I'd say I was an infantry officer. Because if I said I was a Ranger, then they'd be like, ooh, tell me more about that. Why'd you get out? Now I got to tell them because 12 friends died and I got a boss that fired me. And it just, you don't want to go through that so you don't talk about it. Right. And now I'm, I'm back there and I'm talking to these guys. And then it was all guys. Now there's some women there who are very capable, I might add. But these were all guys at that time. And... Uh, as I'm talking to them, now they've got 18 months of combat rotations in and out, and they're drinking, they're angry, they're hurt, they're not reporting any of it, they're not getting any kind of counseling services. And so I left there thinking, I've got to do something. Now I've got 10 years of my transition sucked, but I kind of came through it okay. But I'm still struggling with the meaning thing. Now I'm starting to feel like maybe I have a little bit of purpose here because I can take this experience and maybe help uh, some of these other rangers. So I, I set up the first ranger networking group on LinkedIn. I looked first to see if there were any others. There weren't. So I set up U.S. Army Rangers on LinkedIn. I think that's actually how Stephen first, maybe first connected to me was through that LinkedIn group. Um, and 
from 2003 until 2009, that group grew to be a thousand rangers nationwide. And total volunteer thing, I would, uh, somebody would pop into the network, they'd join LinkedIn, they would say, hey, I wanna join the ranger group. And I would say, what unit were you in? When did you go to ranger school? Who was your company commander, first sergeant, et cetera? And I would verify who they were, bring them into the group. And I would say, where are you? What are you doing? I'd get on the phone with them. And some of them would be looking for work. Some of them would be going through divorces. Some of them would have other things going on. And so I would zip code search LinkedIn. I would find a ranger close to, as close to them as possible. And I would contact another ranger and I would say, there's a ranger in your neck of the woods. You guys need to link up. And so I started facilitating these connections. That's awesome. And when, uh, when 2009 came, rolled around, I had, uh, I'm trying to remember the sequence. I hadn't, uh, I was not working with Bill, but I was still in the construction world because I had, after 9-11 and, and, you know, trying to find my meaning thing, I had gone and done Big Brothers Big Sisters for a couple of years. But I wasn't prepared for the political reality of an established old nonprofit like that. And uh, the old executive director never left, which created some issues. So I stepped back out of that and I went back into the construction world, but I went and worked for private companies. Um, but Bill and I remained friends. And so we would periodically, we would go out and uh, have a beer together. And 2009 happened and the evil auto execs flew their Learjets to DC to talk about how much their business sucked and they couldn't make any money selling cars. Yeah. And almost overnight, private corporate aviation became a bad word because it's these rich jerks that are demanding money from the government when they can't run their own businesses. Well, the biggest customer of the general contractor that I worked for was Cessna Aircraft in Wichita. <clears throat> and Cessna like lost half their business in two months. Jeez. Wow. And, and so the general contractor, family owned business, I wasn't a family member and I'd been there about seven years and I was one of the newer guys. And I felt like I'd made them a lot of money running one of their divisions, but he came to me and said, can't afford to keep you anymore, I gotta let you go. And so I'm, uh, I swore then I would never work for anybody else again, that I would make my own way because I was tired of this bust my butt for other people and not be recognized for that. And in the back of my own mind, I, I had kind of heard about this service disabled veteran owned small business opportunity. And I wanted to see if maybe I could figure out how to start making some money doing, doing some small business stuff. But this Ranger network was taking all of my time because I would spend, I would run into somebody who was having an issue and I would spend all my time getting that guy connected to something. And that was very, very fulfilling to me. And Bill and I are sitting at uh, a restaurant having a beer and I'm telling him, I remember the conversation very vividly, but I was saying, you know, my experience with Big Brothers Big Sisters, my experience with Rangers, if you connect a Ranger with another Ranger, it's kind of like Big Brother, Little Brother. So there should be a nonprofit that does this connection kind of thing because you can help guide this new, newly transitioning ranger through the process that the old ranger's already been through. But because they're rangers, the older ranger can tell them when to pull their head out of their ass and challenge them in ways that somebody that's not a part of that community can do, can't do. 
and uh, he reached into his wallet, pulled out a hundred dollar bill because he always kept one behind his driver's license. Probably still does. Has a little emergency <laughs> get out of jail free thing. If something happens, he needs a hundred bucks. Smart. He slid it across the table and he said, "There's your first donation. Go go get started." And uh, a buddy of mine, another buddy of mine, was an attorney, and I. There were a couple of guys that I routinely had breakfast with. This attorney was one of them. And Mike Pompeo, who just uh, lost his job as Secretary of State, was another one of them. And the, the, the attorney, I, I'm telling everybody that I know I'm telling about this dream of mine. And the attorney says, I'll, I'll assign an attorney to, you won't pay a penny to have your nonprofit set up. You just have whatever the government says, because like 800 bucks or whatever it was to file your nonprofit status. You got to pay that but we're not gonna bill you the hourly rate for the attorney. That ended up being like $15,000 worth of attorney work that this guy did. Wow, helped that's awesome. nonprofit get set up and he did it all for free. And so for the next couple of years, I struggled trying to start a nonprofit with $0. <laughs> and uh, you know, no, no big connections, no big donors. And, uh, and actually for the first three years, I didn't take any kind of compensation from the organization. And if we raised enough money to pay my phone bill, that was good, but I didn't take compensation. And uh, we were actually putting groceries on a credit card for a while because, you know, that's, yeah. it can it get a little tight when you do that. Yeah. So anyway, um, uh, then we had this thing happen where a guy from Third Ranger Battalion reached out to me and said, there's this Corporal Corey Smith who has this hair up his butt and he wants to run from Columbus, Georgia to Indianapolis. And as I explored the story and, and said, why is he doing this? He said, well, he came home from deployment and his wife had left a note that said, you can be a ranger, you can be a dad, you pick. Took their year old daughter and moved home to Indianapolis, cleaned out the apartment. So what do you do? Yeah, that's yeah. hard. Right. He, he had to go into his chain of command and say, my wife is forcing me to leave the army. I mean, that, you know, in that environment, that just doesn't go over very well. No. So you want to talk about shots to self-confidence. And now the black cloud is developing over his transition. Right. And so he has to knowing that they're going back to war soon, he has to leave and get out. And he decides through a combination of things and talking to some other people, he decides to become the physical embodiment of a difficult transition by running from Columbus, Georgia to Indianapolis, 565 miles. And he's gonna do it January of 2012. And he wants to, he has this vision because the Super Bowl is gonna be in Indianapolis like February the 4th. And he wants to be able to go somehow into the Super Bowl festivities and he wants to be able to get up on a stage and talk about veteran transition. So it make long story short, we made that happen. And a lot of that happened because a gold star mom named Sue Penny, whose son, John Penny is a ranger medic that was a posthumous silver star recipient. Um, she found out what we were doing and she said, I'm going to start making phone calls because I believe in this vision that you have. And she actually got Corey Smith interviewed with Robin Mead on CNN. Nice. And there's two videos out there that Robin Mead did with Corey that made people pay attention to what he was doing. And uh, we set up a Facebook page called Run Ranger Run and got a couple of thousand people to follow it and raised about $12,000. Wow. 
And most of that money went to pay for Corey's expenses. Because when, when I first talked to Corey and he explained his plan, I said, okay, so you're going to run 565 miles. Tell me your plan. And he said, well, I'm going to run 20 miles a day. That sounds terrible. <laughs> and I said, and, and what's the rest of your plan? And he said, oh, yeah, mom's going to follow me in the car. And so I said, you know, have you, do you, have you planned the route? Do you have medical support? How, what kind of calorie consumption are you going to have? You're going to have run through shoes, gear. This is January when he's starting this run. You, you got to have more support than just your mom following you in a car. And so we were able to arrange that support and we were able to pay for, uh, he got a stress fracture uh, from running that uh, we were able to get him some medical support along the way, but he wouldn't quit. So he walked until we got him a bike. And it's pretty funny because his dad first came up with the bike and there's this video where he's laughing because he's riding, he calls it this old man's bike. And he did that for a couple of days until a bike shop saw what was going on and they called us up and said, We'll, we'll donate top of the top of the line bike for him to ride. So we got him a, a real bike to ride. And uh, and he managed to get the whole thing done in a month. And we got him up on Super Bowl Village and he and Boone Cutler stood up there and they talked to a crowd of about 100 people about veteran transition and Boone talked about veteran suicide. And uh, and then it was all done. And I was there. It was awesome. Nice. Um, yeah, that sounds cool. It was all done. And then we're like, Okay, so we raised twelve thousand dollars. We spent about ten getting Corey on his trip. We're gonna gift Corey a thousand dollars. Now we got fifteen hundred or two thousand dollars for the organization. What are we gonna do with this money? And we thought maybe we can find somebody else. You guys are fading out on me. Are you still there? Okay. Yeah. That was uh, weird. I thought I lost you there for a minute. Yeah, paused for a second. Internet went wonky. Um we uh, we started looking around for the next person that would want to run 565 miles the next year, and we couldn't get any volunteers. And <laughs> so we go figure. <laughs> I had, <laughs> so I got this this uh, brilliant idea that, in retrospect, really was brilliant that we should form teams of ten, and challenge people to in teams of ten do what Corey did: walking, biking, running. Uh, and if you take the 565 and you divide it by 10, it's 56 and a half per person. Month of February is 28 days. It's two miles a day. So can you make a commitment with nine other people to do two miles every day in the month of February, at least two miles every day in the month of February, walking, biking, swimming, whatever. And uh, in 2013, we had a thousand people that paid like 25 bucks to register for it. They all got a t-shirt and we raised a hundred thousand dollars. Oh, that's awesome. And it only cost us about $6,000 to do the event because of the t-shirts. Yeah. And, uh, and now we actually had money. So we, we decided, you know, we needed to figure out what we really were. And that's when we started trying to implement Salesforce and we started putting some things in place to make us more professional. And, uh, and, and then 24, 15, I want to say, we had every year Run Ranger Run had gone up about $25,000. And uh, my wife whispered in my ear and said, it's time for you to ask the board to either hire you or you need to get a job. And then you can do this on the weekend. <laughs> and so I went to the board and, and I said, um, you know, need to hire me. 
but I put a limit on it. And this is before Steven was on the board. Yeah. Cause I would have shot it down immediately. Yeah. <laughs> but I said, <laughs> I said, I won't take more than $25,000 in salary because my wife had a good job and, uh, and I knew the organization didn't have that much in resources to really pay. And flash forward four years later, and the board chair had a discussion with me and said, you know, if as Gallant Few has grown now and Run Ranger Run's bringing in three, four hundred thousand dollars a year, um, if we ever had to replace you, we couldn't do it for twenty five thousand dollars a year. So we need to start thinking about establishing a precedent and, and we need to pay you more. And so over those years, they bumped me up now and I, I, I may it's you can read it right on the 990 that we turn into the IRS. I make seventy five thousand dollars a year right now with Gallant Few. And you're still not going to be able to hire somebody uh, at that amount to do the things that this organization is doing. But I'm okay with that for now. But we have to be able to build the capacity so that at some point in the future, um, whether it's somebody that we're growing internally to the organization and we hire somebody externally, we'll, it will cost more than that. Um, one of the things that I'm really proud of it. And if I'm droning on, I'm telling too much details or whatever, and you guys want to interrupt me, just no, this is awesome. Start yelling or something, and, and I'm happy to shut up. But what we found off early on was the original intent of connecting one veteran with another one is it's very powerful, but it's impossible to manage. Yeah. Because if if I connect Stephen with Adam somewhere. Shick. They are not going to come back to me. I'm sorry. His name is Shick. But it says Adam. On I know. He doesn't know how to spell. He's a Marine. His name is Shick. <laughs> okay. All right, Shick. Sorry about that. Thank you. Thank you. So so if I connect Stephen and Shick, they're not going to come back to me after a week and give me a report. Hey, we had a we had lunch last week, and, uh, and I introduced him to somebody who's going to help him get a job. But you don't get that kind of feedback. So... What happens is there's really good things that are happening as we're introducing people, but we're not in the loop on it, which is fun. I'm, I'm totally fine with that, but it's really hard to be able to measure that effectiveness because, you know, somebody says, well, how many matches have you made? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> are they still meeting? I don't know. And, and so we had to figure out how to quantify a little bit more what we did. And, and every year, because Gallup, you went like the very first year in 2010, we helped about two dozen veterans. And it kind of doubled every year for a couple of years. And then we started um, through social media getting a lot more attention. And as it's developed, just to give you an idea, in 2020, we provided uh, just over 2,000 services to 881, I think it is, just different veterans. And those services ranged from some limited financial support. We're not a wealthy organization, so we have to be very careful when we give somebody cash but we do an awful lot of one-on-one -on -one coaching and we do a lot of, of events that we can kind of control so we know the things that are going on. An example of that is we've been influential in helping the Ranger Regiment re-establish the Ranger for Life program. And they are rolling concepts from Gallant Few into RASP now. So when a kid goes to RASP, and, and my point all along was you could have somebody that graduates from RASP and a week later has a catastrophic parachute injury and 18, 19 years old, what are they gonna do for the rest of their life but be a miserable old drunk because the VA is gonna say they're 100% disabled, retire them and then expect nothing of them. So we've got to start warning them ahead of time that it's gonna be important for them to stay connected to community, 
to have a sense of purpose, mission, and, and all of those things. And don't let the fact that you failed on a parachute jump remove you from the community that you fought so hard to get into. So it's a, a huge part of what we do, as well as financial advising. You know, we're not financial advisors, but we have other veterans that are. And like um, Tony Main, who's on staff with us, he, he always says, you know, who has money? Either financial advisors or people who have financial advisors. So maybe you should get a either be a financial advisor or get a financial advisor. So even if you're making, you know, a little bit amount, a little bit of money, you still need to sit down with a financial advisor and, and really examine what's the best way to invest in your future. And so these conversations now are happening at the E3, E4 level of the Ranger Regiment as they're going in, which is really cool. Um, we started about uh, a year and a half ago, we really started focusing on this thing that we call the azimuth check. And the azimuth check aligns with Gallant Fuse service delivery model for veterans. And that falls into this thing that we call the Gallant Fuse star. And again, based on after action review, lessons learned, all the experiences of all of these veterans combined with some pretty good uh, psychological resources, we came into this concept of self-training and responsibility. And I'm a fan of Dr. Stephen Covey, who tragically passed away a few years ago, and Viktor Frankl, who was uh, a Jewish psychologist that was an inmate in a concentration camp, World War II, and he, he died an old man a long time ago. But he was groundbreaking in his ability to identify um, how to overcome extreme adversity. Yeah. And when he was, when he, are you guys familiar with him? He wrote a book called Man's Search for Meaning. Yeah, I've read the book and it's, it's amazing. Um, just his yeah. story alone is mind blowing. But what he took from it and, and basically to live that case study essentially was really cool. Well, and what he found if you boil it down to something really, really simple, and because we work with a lot of Marines, we like to make sure that we boil things down into really, really simple <laughs> Amen. concepts. We, ap we appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and when they grasp them, then we give them their choice of red or green crayons yes. for a snack. Always mm -hmm. red. But Always red. Yeah. <laughs> Gotta love red. <laughs> um, uh, one of my best friends is a Marine. Anyway, uh, boiling it down to really, really simple, what Frankel found were there were two main groups of inmates in this concentration camp, and they were those that lived and those that died. And those that died, well, let me go back a step, those that lived tended to have a vision of life after they were going to be released from the camp. So they, in their heads, they rebuilt their businesses, they rebuilt their homes, they wrote their books, they reunited with their families, and that gave them the hope and purpose to be able to survive this horrific experience. So they, they basically chose that they were going to survive. And those that couldn't envision life outside that prison wire were the ones most likely to die within it. Uh, there are examples of American POWs that spent you know, years and years and years in the Hanoi Hilton that built homes in their, in their minds. They did all of these things that, because they had hope for what was going to happen when they got out. When in, in the veteran world, those veterans that are the most likely to take their own lives are the ones that have lost hope. 
They're the ones that are isolated and they don't have a vision of what it looks like after. And uh, right. uh, an example of this is talking about that azimuth check earlier. The azimuth check has 25 statements that we ask anyone to self-assess. And we offer it up to non-veterans or patriots as well, because if we can get people to assess their level of fitness through the azimuth check and we can motivate them to do something to make their surroundings better, then their community is going to be better. And if everybody does it in all their communities, then the country is going to be better. So it's our way of trying to continue to provide a resource even outside the veteran space. But within the veteran space, we'll focus on that. There's one really key statement on there. And it's in our functional emotional fitness category. And that statement says, I believe life is worth living. One is not at all and 10 is a whole bunch. So last week I had a veteran who put a three out of 10 on there. Yeah. And our policy is, this was actually Friday night and mm. I was done. I'd finished homework. I'd finished doing a bunch of other stuff. And because I'm studying for my master's in counseling, because I figure I better get trained in what I'm already doing. So I have some legitimacy behind it. But I'm like, Bryce is out climbing a mountain somewhere. And I know Zach is off doing something. And it's like, gosh, dang it. I got it. It's on me. I got to reach out to this guy. So I reached out to the veteran. I texted him and, uh, and said, you know, hey, got your azimuth check. When is a good time to talk? thinking he'd tell me in the morning. He's like, I'm available now. <laughs> so, okay, so, so let's do this. So I, I get on the phone, I call him and, uh, you know, I don't say, hey, are you going to kill yourself? What I do is, well, tell me what's going on. What, you know, what, what got you connected to us? And he had been referred to us by another veteran because he had, long story short, he, he makes his living as a contractor He's very talented at what he does and he's made a decent living at it, but he got COVID and he has a disintegrated disc in his back. And for a period of 60 days, he was not able to work. And he's got a bunch of jobs that are ready to bill when he finishes them, but he wasn't able to do the work. So he didn't get the income and the car lot came and picked up his truck and his truck had all his tools in it. Mm. So now he can't work because he doesn't have his tools and he doesn't have the money to get his truck. And I mean, all of these things are just piling up on right. it. And, and he had, as he's telling me a story, he goes, I had to pry a little bit out of him, but I, I said, you know, so tell me, what did you do when you were in the military? And he told me, and he was, uh, if I remember right, he was combat engineer pre 9-11. He had some overseas deployments. That one was to Afghanistan where they did some nation building things in the mid nineties, which I didn't know we did. Yeah. But but he's not considered a, a combat veteran. And he was very clear about telling me that he was not a combat veteran. Right. And the reason that he had to get out was because he had he had two kids. He had a, a daughter that was I don't know, three or four and he had a, an infant son and the son was special needs. And I'm not clear what the special needs was, but his wife said, well, I can't deal with this. And she just left. And so. Jeez. What happens to a single parent in the military? You're screwed. Nothing good. Get chaptered out, right? <laughs> yeah. Because you can't deploy if you're a single parent. So he's now being forced out 
So there's there's that black cloud again, yep. right? Because because the army has now screwed him over and the relationship has screwed him over. And so he, he goes and he and he pursues a couple of different career paths before he lands on the contracting side. His son that has special needs became his purpose. And he, he focused on taking care of the son. And and this son recently decided to become a sous chef. So he packed up his son and he sent him to a different state to live with a relative so he could go to chef school. Wow. So the son's been gone for a while. And, and he's by himself and he's sick and he can't bill and his truck's repossessed and his tools are gone. And uh, and I said, so how's, I said, then I came back to the three out of 10 question. I said, I noticed on your your azimuth check that you scored three out of 10 on life worth living. That tells me there's a 70% chance tonight you're gonna kill yourself. And he says, that's why I'm not drinking right now because last weekend I got drunk and I sat with my pistol in my mouth Oof. for about an hour trying to get the guts to pull a trigger. And, uh, and so what we do is pretty high stakes. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, that's so uh, powerful. So I, I, uh, after, after a minute, you know, I'm emotional about it right now just because this is, uh, this is one of those can't fail kind of conversations and right. and so I asked him I said so you know tell me more about your son and he did and I said do you suppose that when he graduates from the chef school there's going to be some sort of a ceremony and he said yeah I think there probably will be and I said uh, do you want to be there and he said yeah I want to be there and I said well close your eyes and create the scene in your head see how proud your son is and how proud you are your son and He's going to cook for you and impress you with the meal and, you know, just get this whole picture of what it all looks like. And after a couple of minutes, he he got the picture in his head and he said, yeah, I, I really can see that. And I said, so on a scale of one to ten, what, you know, where, where does life rank? And he said, it's a ten. And, you know, that when I was talking earlier about that, the thing that slope that takes you down, right, that that. My, I don't remember if I ever finished the story of my grandfather dying alone in a men's shelter in Denver, alcoholic, no friend, no family, no friends. You know, this guy could be my grandfather. Yeah. And then what's going to happen to his kids out in the future? You know, this, this, the ripple out into the future is not just his kids, but his kids' kids and all of the other people that get impacted by that. So now we have the opportunity to change this which is going to make the other relationships hopefully better, which is going to, now you have a positive funnel going out into the future instead of a negative funnel going out in the future. But we're, we, in our very limited, in our limited way, I talked to uh, Frank Campanero, who's our board chair. I got approval to spend more than $1,000 because of more than $1,000 get his truck out. And yesterday I went and picked up a, a cashier's check and, and got it so the guy can get his truck out. And this is a veteran that nobody else would help because number one, it took a network because he had to tell a buddy what was going on. That buddy knew me, so the buddy got us connected. Right. But he's pre 9-11. So any of the big organizations that are out there, like here in Dallas, there's a, a they call it Cowtown Marines, I think it's called. Yeah. That raises a bunch of money and, and does financial support. You got to be post 9-11. 
to, to be eligible. Wounded Warrior Project, post 9-11. I'm a Desert Storm veteran, they won't touch me. Uh, the, if you look at most of the big organizations that are out there, the young veterans are the sexy ones that they want to help. And they overlook the fact that older veterans may for decades be struggling and then they're at that point when they're 50 years old and they're like, my life has no meaning, no purpose, I don't matter to anybody, I don't need to be here anymore. And, and that, I think, is a huge contributor to the number of veteran suicides on a daily basis. So yeah. that, that's something that, I mean, Stephen, thank you for being part of the leadership of Gallup Few because you give, you give me the, the leeway to run this thing, to be able to have those kind of conversations, but you also put your money where your mouth is. You've donated and your company has donated to give us the money to do this because, you know, going back to the conversation with my wife, either this is your job or it's a hobby and, uh, and it's too important to be a hobby. And, and it has run Ranger run, which has now morphed into Patriot challenge. That is the thing that gives us the ability to do that. And regardless of whether we can count how many matches we've created or how many matches are still together or any of that other kind of stuff, which if we had a grant from the government, they might want to, well, you can't tell us you have 120 matches, so we're not going to give you any more money. When there's five or 10,000 people out there that say, we believe in what you do, we're going to give you a hundred bucks. Now we have the funds to be able to staff our operations and have enough to be able to do some limited financial assistance like we've done. So it's, it's super important, um, both what we do and the way that we get funding to do it. So... First off, um, I have, you're, you know, you're very welcome, but I've also done almost nothing for this organization. So I that, um, but I would, so something I think I've always wondered, and I've known you for, uh, a, I actually got out in the end of 2013. Um, <clears throat> and one of the things that I would, uh, you know, I'm, I'll thank you again for the hundredth time. You know, you said that you would get on the phone with guys and help them get them connected on LinkedIn, different things. You know, I wanted, you know, we'll put it on the ether, wherever the heck this podcast goes besides my phone and Schick's phone. That's about it. But, um, you know, we, you called me and you sat with me for four, over four hours and we went line by line and redid my entire resume because I was coming out. I was moving back to Fort Worth. I, I, I mean, I had friends there, but I didn't have, you know, I didn't exactly know what I wanted to do. And it, and it was the whole, just that alone was such an impactful thing for me and, and taking just some of that stress off of figuring out what the hell you're going to do. Cause you start over. I mean, everything starts over. It's like getting out of college or getting out of high school. And all of a sudden you're like, all right, what am I going to do? Um, cause I was definitely there. You know, you said when you got out, you didn't have a clue what you were going to do. Um, that was me. I mean, I had no idea. So, uh, you know, I think what you do is obviously is amazing. And, and that's kind of my question is how do you do this? How did you do this before when you didn't have as much support or, you know, you didn't have Bryce, you didn't have uh, Zach, you didn't have some of these other guys around you, you know, and when we're talking 2012, 2013, I mean, I mean, not even touching the whole fact that you didn't get paid. I mean, how do you, how did you do this? Like, I think I'm an emotional wreck already, and I can't, I'm like, got a two, I got two little kids, and like, my wife is, I don't, I'm not talking to people out of killing themselves on a Friday night. So, 
where where does that come from? Like how how do you, how how have you been able to to go through I, this? You know, I can't, Stephen. I can't. Uh, I can't tell you there there was uh, any kind of a plan on my part. It it uh, when I look back in retrospect, and one of the reasons I want to tell the whole story, you know, I'm a I'm a uh, let me phrase this the right way. I'm I'm a faith guy, but I'm not a religion guy. Yeah, because I, I think a lot of the, the big organized religions have have gone off the path of what the original message was. But when I look back from the my dad leaving when I was four all the way through the Big Brothers thing and and how I ended up kind of stumbling into the opportunity to get an ROTC scholarship, not, I didn't plan any of that stuff. I could not have sat back and said, this is the path that I'm going to walk. Um, there, there was, in my opinion, there was something, somebody might call it karma, somebody might call it God, something was was guiding uh, me through all of that. And that something has given me the ability to have conversations with people that are really, really difficult. And uh, I remember that one of the very first crisis calls that I got was an Army Ranger uh, who had left the military because he was a best ranger competitor. And during the competition, his, he had kidney failure. Mm. And that kidney failure led him to being medically discharged. And, and there's just all kinds of bad things that came from that. And, and this guy called me. He was sitting in his truck. He was out in the country. He had a fifth of Jack Daniels in his lap, and he had a loaded shotgun. And he was just calling to tell me that it was over and he was going to kill himself. And I was almost 100% certain I was going to hear that shotgun go off. And we talked for hours. And, and uh, it's, it's um, he didn't kill himself. And now he's a very successful real estate guy who managed to go into a, an AA program and did inpatient. And, and he's been able to overcome a lot of those things. But... That's great. I can't tell you how I knew what to say. You know, now now I have a much better understanding of what to say because I've done it. Unfortunately, I've done it so many times. Mm -hmm. And I have to be careful because, like with the veteran last week, I could text him, get on the phone, say, dude, three out of 10, 70% going to kill yourself. What the hell? You know, or right. I could say, well, let me tell you all the things that are going on in your life now. Let's talk about how to get over that. But I can't do that because then what's going to happen? Now I'm like your dad and they're just going to shut off. Right. So I have to I have to develop the conversation and, and really understand what's going on. And then um, it's not an appearance that I care, but they have to understand that I really do care. And it's not it's not just you know, I'm doing this because it's a job or anything like that. It is something that I take absolutely deadly serious. I, I actually had to apologize to the Galfew staff the other day because I get so focused on the fact that I have conversations that save lives, that if one of the staff members does something that is not in line with that, that may slow it down a little bit or, or, or not be related directly to that mission, I might be very curt in telling them, no, we're not going to do that. That's, I don't say it's a dumb idea. I don't think usually, but I may, I may just say, no, that's not. We're not going to do that. Stop doing that and do this other thing, which, uh, for some people, 
it, it's hard for them to to hear something like that because then they read into it that they're going to get fired because they're not doing their job right. And that's sure. that's not it at all. It's just so I uh, there are some things that I have to work on myself in my own communication style. And, uh, and, and especially with people that are close to me, I have to be careful about not just being demanding of them because of the sense of mission that I have sometimes. I, I do that to Zach too much. I come down on him pretty hard if if it's been longer than I perceive it should be for him to connect with a veteran that reached out to us. I can I can come down on him pretty hard. And, and he and I have talked and I've told him, it's not personal when I do that. Don't take it personal. You know, just understand that that's, I take it really, really serious. And if you need help, let me know and I'll help you with it. Yeah. I just, uh, I want to jump in here. I want to first to say just thank you. Um, that, that last story about the, the veteran you just recently spoke to, that, that hit especially hard just because I think you nailed it with the fact that older generations are, are really overlooked and there shouldn't ever be a generation or a, a decade of a veteran that um, doesn't feel the same kind of support as, you know, one that gets out, you know, after 9-11 or through the Iraq or Afghanistan wars. So, I mean, that's a really important thing that gets overlooked a lot. Um, and so I really, really appreciate what you do because it, that is just immensely important and, and just so impactful on any individual that you can um, make an impact like that. And, and a, definitely thank you for sharing your backstory and kind of the struggles and hardships you went through because it's it's very clear. I've been on a lot of different veteran resources websites that there is just so much thought that went into this based off of lived experiences and lessons learned, like you said, and the asthma specifically just breaking down the fields of emotional and physical and spiritual, professional and social. It's not just a one size or one shoe fits all as to why a veteran might kill himself or why they're struggling or he just can't find a job. It, it snowballs and it's just so much that goes into that purpose that you talked about that, that they need to have or they need to find or they're physically not right or emotionally and spiritually and just that you guys have taken the time and care to, you know, try and, I guess, address all of those in understanding how to truly live a healthy life, you know, when you're struggling post-military. It's, uh, it's something I really respect, and I, I really, really thank you for, for talking about your story and just for what you guys are doing because it's a fantastic resource. I want the VA to do the azimuth check with every veteran because when you look at that, you know, as, as part of that philosophy that we have, I talk a lot about nightland navigation and how it, there are parallels to military transition because in nightland navigation, if you've ever, old school, right? No GPS allowed. If you've ever used a lens attic compass where you have to dial in your, your azimuth and you have to follow those glowing dots and you have to count your steps and work your pace cord, any, anything that takes you off that azimuth may prevent you from reaching your objective but you have to know what your objective is first or you can't get an azimuth to it right 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 but you know you joke about uh, doing the spider dance because you walk through a big spider oh. web in the middle of the night <laughs> you know that you fall down in a ditch or you got it there's a big tree right in the way of my azimuth i have to go around the tree only there's a hill so it really gets me off azimuth but getting back on azimuth in that environment is crucial if you're going to get to where you're supposed to be right when you take that into veteran transition the azimuth is whatever information you have as you go through your transition training and you're leaving the military and other people have given you guidance or whatever so you you kind of have this 
this azimuth of, of kind of where you want to go. And as soon as you start out and the VA jerks you around and it's hard to get a job and you have to use GI Bill to pay for your apartment and you're self-medicating, all of those are the spider webs and the trees and the ditches that take you off azimuth. The thing that's really missing though is how do you get back on azimuth if you really don't know where you're going? And a lot, anybody that knows me gets sick of hearing me say this, but I'm going to say it again. And uh, it's a quote from my favorite philosopher, Yogi Berra. And Yogi said, if you don't know where you're going, you'll probably end up someplace else. <laughs> and well if you think about how profound that is, yeah, right? Because you, if you don't know where you're going, you just start on a trip somewhere. And when you get there, you're like, man, I wished I had gone over there. Well, if you take the time now to really think, how can I establish where I want to go? Then you can really set the path to get there. And the azimuth check gives us periodic checkpoints. So if you take the azimuth check the first time and we find out life worth living scores low, or one of my favorite questions on there is, I think it's the very last one, and it says, Facebook stresses me out. One's not at all, tens a whole bunch. Now, if you score more than like a three on Facebook stresses me out, we really need to talk <laughs> because you are not using Facebook the right way. So, but, but what happens, you get somebody, you get a veteran that is chasing down web pages or they're just surfing through looking at discussion groups. And there are a lot of things that glorify the negative side of being a veteran, whether it's alcohol or, or other things like that. Yeah. And at two or three o'clock in the morning, you know, they're making posts on Facebook that, but you, you don't have a job, but at three o'clock in the morning, you're on Facebook. You know, let's talk about really what you want to do and where your priorities are. One of the things that I had a conversation, I talked to a Rotary Club today and talked about this with them because one of them said, I would love to hire some veterans. I've got a, a business that, you know, we need, it's not easy work. It, I don't remember exactly what it is, but like J-Dog, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Casey, the owner of J-Dog wants to hire veterans. It's hard freaking work to go. Yeah demo a house or something in 110 degree weather in the middle of Texas in the summertime. So it's much easier to take your GI bill to pay for the place you live while you kind of take some PUD classes, right? But if you kind of bite the bullet, go do a job like J-Dog or with a roofing company or somebody that, you know, it doesn't matter what your qualifications are, they just need somebody, go make some money, save as much of that money as you can and use that time while you can pay your bills to really start thinking and contemplating on what you want to be, whether it's a, a person that cures cancer or an engineer or a doctor, you know, whatever it is. And then after a year, then go hit your GI Bill and start really pursuing intentionally that career that you want. But uh, that's something that doesn't seem like a lot of veterans want to do. And uh, Hopefully we can influence more of them to do something like that. Make the, make the kind of choices that intentionally make it better for them. So what advice do you have for people that, because this is something that I kind of struggled with, a lot, well, not kind of, I struggled with a lot, especially coming out of college as a younger person, kind of around the age that you would get a lot of veterans coming out because I was a graduate at 22, 22. Um, how, do, how do you, what advice do you give people to, figure out what that it is that they want to go or where they want to go or how they want to do it without getting paralyzed by the options. The paralyzed by the option is, uh, that's a, a really good, 
kind of an example, I guess, because like I, I said, here, here I am now, I, I feel like I've got hope and purpose and I really feel like I matter in the work that I do. But I'm the classic example of if I intentionally tried to plan this out, I probably would not be doing this. Right. So I'm going to speak out of both sides of my mouth on this. I'm just, I'm really, 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 really lucky. I mean, there are so many things that have come together. My wife is, has a wonderful career as a communications director for a, a big company. So she makes three times more money than me, which I am 100% okay yeah, with amen. because that enables me to do this. Um, it's not three times, but she definitely makes more than me anyway. Um, so not everybody has the luxury to do this, but sure. How do you how do you be intentional about that? And the first thing is, you have to create space so that you can think about, you can explore things, you can, you know, there are groups like Rotary clubs and Chambers of Commerce, um, and uh, one, there's another one that just went right out of my head. It's not um, Knights of Columbus. But there, there are a bunch of groups out there that welcome people to just go visit and meet other professional people in the area. Chambers of Commerce are wonderful for this. And if you ever thought that you wanted to be a small business owner, then go find a small business owner through the Chamber of Commerce and say, can I buy you a cup of coffee? I, I would like to learn, you know, what would you tell me if I want to be a small business owner, where should I start? And you might be surprised at the kind of information that you get back. Um, being able to, like you did with insurance, Stephen, when, when uh, you know, I, I remember the day that you told me that you kind of thought maybe you'd want to be an insurance agent. And I'm like, Army Ranger, an insurance agent? Are you on crack? I mean, what <laughs> with you? Yeah, You're I was on meth, actually. That. Yes, yeah. he was. <laughs> <laughs> and, but what happened, you know, you went, you, you found... Uh, an agent that was willing to take you in for a year or two as you worked and you got to see on the inside what it was like. And then you were like, yeah, I really do want to do this. If you didn't want to do that, that year gave you the, that time to go, wow, this really isn't what I want to do. And then you could go kind of repeat the thing with another, another opportunity somewhere. So creating the space is huge. We have, uh, we have an agreement with an organization called Indigo Assessments. And Indigo has, they take the Myers-Briggs personality type test where you, you find out, you know, what your dominant traits are. And it has some other things that are all rolled in there. And we can offer it for free to a veteran. So you can go do this assessment and it will tell you, hey, have you ever thought about, you know, walking dogs for a living? Or have you ever thought about designing rockets for a living? Because based on what you have said here is important to you. Maybe you should look at this kind of a, of a whatever. That's one way to do it. Mm -hmm. Another way is to think about the things that if you had a million dollars and you didn't have to work, what would you do? Right? Maybe you would volunteer at an animal shelter or maybe you would, I don't know, whatever it is. If that's what you would do, then start looking for opportunities to work within that thing that you would do. And then if you're able to be lucky enough to have your passion aligned with being able to make money, then success is going to come out of that. Because if you really find that you like it, now you can use your GI Bill to maybe become a veterinarian or something along those kind of lines. But it's, it's about creating the space 
so that you can really figure out what it is that you want to do. And I, I think the biggest issue with so many veterans is they don't give themselves the space. They have to get a job. They have to have health insurance. And hey, I get it. My, I had two young daughters. My wife, my starter wife had not graduated from college. I needed to get a job that had a health care plan because they needed to have health care coverage. So I, I, I understand the pressures of that. And I made errors along the way, you know, as I did that. And there are things that I would have done differently now in retrospect if I could go back and do it again. Yeah, that's one of the, that's, that's a unique take as far as I remember when I was going through my transition, everyone said GI Bill is not a plan. And so during our transition time, they were very meticulous about making sure you had some sort of a plan, which of course 90% of the people just wrote whatever they needed to to get their things signed off. But if more people did that and just didn't just say, I'm going to jump right to the GI Bill because I'm too scared how to pay my bills, then how many people would not have used up three years of their GI Bill and never get a degree? Because I see that all the time with people who drop out of their program because they're like, two years in, it's not what I want to do. And now there's no way I'm going to be able to complete an undergrad with my benefits. And then you talk about the spiral of hopelessness there as soon as something like that happens. Uh, yeah, I wish... I wish it was presented in more of a positive way like that. Um, and I know, like you said, it is hard to say, well, I'm getting out, I have a family, like the bills have to get paid. But you have to have a long-term kind of view of, of where you want to be and, and just kind of understand that if you, if you rely on your skills as a veteran, as your hard work and your integrity, you're probably going to make, probably going to find your way through it. And if you do it the right way, it might be hard at first, but yeah, you're going to get there and be, be happier for, for that struggle, I guess. Yeah, and if you're going into the military or you're re-enlisting and you hear this, maximize the money that you get, right? Maximize yeah. the matches that the government has a pretty good investment plan now that they didn't have when I was in. If you have, if you get a, an enlistment or a re-enlistment bonus, do not go buy the biggest, fanciest pickup truck that you can possibly find. Um, Don't get married to the first out. girl that looks at you. Yeah, stuck it up or and, at all. and used Uber, right? I, that was one of the mistakes that I made. I Hey, I got commissioned as a second lieutenant in 1983, and now I had a guaranteed annual salary of $12,000 a year. That was my Woo. that was a starting salary for a, for a lieutenant in 1983. Just rolling. And so what does a brand-new lieutenant uh, do that's graduating from college, getting ready to go on active duty? He sells his classic MGB, 1971 MGB convertible, mm. and buys a brand new Firebird. And well. these, these were the days of uh, my friend, President Carter. And the interest rate on my Firebird loan was 18%. Oh, God. 18% for a car loan. <laughs> Good Lord. So I was, so $12,000 works out to be about $1,000 a month. $565 of that went into car payment and insurance. Ugh. And and what did I do for the following 12 months? Never drive your car. I went to Fort Benning and to basic school, and I went to ranger school. And that car sat in the damn parking lot <laughs> and got like... Oh, classic. I, I was, I was, that was the dumbest of the dumbest things I ever could have done. Mm-hmm. But, but that's common, right? Because, man, I got this more money now than I ever thought I would have. Uh, but, but if you take that, 
that money and stick it away somewhere. If you're brand new starting out in the military, maximize the investments that you make, maximize your deployment pay, stick it into savings or investment. Then when you get out, you can not work for a whole year and just live on the savings while you look at your navel and figure out what it is that you might want to do. But it's all about creating that space to identify and then have an intentional plan put together for it. Yeah, so I had a, I had another question. I was hoping you could, I, I'm, as I go through the website, I just want to be clear as to where you're able to get most of your donations from. Is it Run Ranger Run now, the Patriot Challenge, that is the main focal point of how you try to raise money? Yeah, 2020 was uh, was hard on us, just like it was for everybody else. We were we were bumping up to where we thought we might raise a million dollars in 2020, and so we went from about 850 thousand in 2019 to around 700 thousand in 2020. Um, Run Ranger Run in 2020 brought in over 400 thousand dollars, and the event cost us about 50 because we're doing T-shirts and prizes and things and, and mailing out to the people that participate. But but that that's the majority of it. And then we have some tremendous mission support partners uh, and donors and classic Chevrolet and Grapevine, Texas. In uh, the end of 2020, Thanksgiving week gave us a check for $40,000. Wow. There's a, a company called Carrington Charitable Foundation that's tied to the Carrington companies based out of Southern California that does a lot of uh, commercial real estate. And I think over the years, they're our biggest donor. They're usually somewhere between thirty dollars and $40,000 a year that they donate. We have events like the uh, Honoring Sandrino's Sacrifice Golf Tournament. Uh, it's put on by Gold Star Family because their son, First Ranger Battalion, um, Sandrino Plutino was killed in action. He was an E7 on like his 14th deployment. Jeez. And they do a golf tournament in New Jersey every year. They did not do one in 2020 because of COVID. But every year for the previous three or four years, they usually sent about either seven or $8,000. So we have the most of it comes from Patriot Challenge now, but a huge part of it comes from corporate sponsors. And then they're like, um, well, like with State Farm. State Farm has a program. If you're a State Farm employee and you make a donation, State Farm will match it. My wife works for Textron, and we all we donate every year. Textron will match the donations that we make. So those, all of those things add up. And, and I have to say, this is February the second. So Patriot Challenge uh, just kicked off yesterday. Which yes, sir. Used to be called Major Run. And let me uh, take a quick look here. I've got it pulled up. It's actually 224,000. Um, well, 224,000 yeah. on, on day two. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, that's when amazing. I looked at that about uh, four hours ago, it was just over 220. Wow. So that, uh, and, and we had a, a lot of donations that came in the week before. So last week we had donations that came in. So all of them didn't come in yesterday. But I think yesterday morning we were somewhere in the low hundreds. So the response to this is phenomenal. And, and what happens is we're able to leverage a platform uh, that ties into Facebook. So it's like with the Facebook uh, birthday fundraisers. So you can go tag all your friends and say, hey, support this thing. Yeah. And 
you know, people think that given like 15 or $20 doesn't mean a whole lot. We have a gentleman named Coy, I won't say his last name for privacy, but starting in 2011, Coy every month has sent a $15 check every single month. That's so cool. And, and uh, Coy is now up to about $2,000 in donations because he sent, he, he has a, this thing that just comes out of his bank. It's a, like a, a check that comes from the bank. It's not from him. So he probably doesn't even remember that he did it, but those little things really add up and they make a huge difference. And, you know, I, I when you're talking about donations, I encourage anybody that wants to donate to a nonprofit, whether it's a veteran nonprofit or a kid nonprofit or an animal nonprofit, do some research. No, understand who you're giving money to and what they use it for and understand what their overhead rate is. Because I'll brag about it all day long. Gallup Hughes over rate from our overhead rate from our audit from um, 2019 was 6%. From 2018, it was 4%. So we've gone up a little bit. But when you when you roll in big donation platforms and when you have to pay $15,000 for an audit, all those things become overhead right. um, that don't apply directly to the mission. But if you look at well, the biggest veteran nonprofit that's out there and you look at their overhead, it's probably in the 35% range because of all the mailings and the, the things that they do to try to raise money. So you want to make sure that the money that you donate to a nonprofit is going actually going into the mission. So then of the other 70% that that organization raises for money, what did they do? What, what are the programs that they fund? And what can they point to that are, that are real outcomes. And that's something that, you know, as we raise more money, the azimuth check becomes for us a way to point to outcomes. Because if I have, if I have Stephen do an azimuth check the first day we meet, and like the three out of 10 question, and then a month later I can do an azimuth check and now it's 10 out of 10, I can show a 70% improvement in, in his outlook on life. That is real measurable outcomes that is something that we can tell people really works. So look look for organizations that do that. And if an organization doesn't put um, their EIN on their website or their Facebook page, you should question them because an EIN is like kind of like a social security number uh, for an individual. It's the thing that the IRS uses to track you, but there's no identity theft with nonprofits. But that EIN lets you go to the IRS's website and verify that they're a legitimate, approved IRS nonprofit. Oh. And if you go to GuideStar, or we're not big enough yet, but Charity Navigator, if you raise more than a million dollars, you can Charity Navigator will rate your organization. You can use that EIN to look up an organization. So if it's hard to find the EIN, then maybe they don't want you to find the information on them. That's a good point. So with um, so I participated in Run Ranger Run over the last um, probably the last four or five years. What years is now? Twenty twenty one. So probably since about two thousand fourteen. Um, I have ran walked a mile and a half. I'll have you know because I'm on your team. I just haven't registered those miles yet. <laughs> um, but um, so it was Run Ranger Run. Now throughout twenty twenty, I mean I've got my sticker. I got my shirt. It's 
it's over here. I think it's actually in the wash. But um, and then I've got it. I got a sticker now. So now there's no longer a Run Ranger run. There is Patriot Challenge, and so I've seen some people asking questions about it on the Run Ranger run, the Gallant Few website, and Gallant Few stuff on the Facebook. Um, so what what happened? Why did it change? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, Run Ranger run. The name of the name came about that kind of like Run Forest Run. Yeah. Right. So it was, it was funny. I think even the Marine got that yeah, one. And attention getting. Yeah. And <laughs> what? Um, <laughs> Never mind. Don't worry about well, it. What were we talking about? And uh, well, I started talking with uh, Candace Bryant, who was our development director before she went to work for a Texas kind of statewide organization uh, last year. But Candace and I, for several years, have talked about the fact that Run Ranger Run is a limiting name. Mm-hmm. Because if you are a Marine or if you were a truck driver in the Army or served in a different branch of the military, maybe you don't have a tight affinity with the word Ranger. It might be intimidating to you or it might just be like if you're a Marine, why would I want to do a Ranger thing? I, mean, I got that from the Ranger, the, the Marines that were on our staff, Raider Project folks. Yeah. A nonprofit that has we have now spun out and graduated to be their own nonprofit. They pushed back tremendously on, on the the ranger name because they're raiders. They're not rangers, so it it becomes something that's limiting and maybe even potentially divisive. Sure. And then, I have an artificial hip, so I can't run. And there are people out there that say, "Well, I don't run," and run is in the name twice. Yeah. So is it, is it really cool? I mean, that's one of the things, and I don't remember if we were talking about this on this call earlier or if I talked about it with the group I spoke to at lunch today, but there is a tendency to want to maybe glom on or s- support something that's kind of sexy, right? Sure. Ranger, SEAL, that stuff is like, ooh, I want to, you know, let me be a part of that. I, I wasn't in the military, but... But ooh, I can I can say that I'm part of a, a SEAL support organization or a Ranger support organization. Um, there are people that are out there like that, and I'm totally fine with them supporting Ranger stuff. If they want to do that, the U.S. Army Ranger Association, Three Rangers Foundation, there are Ranger-focused nonprofits that I fully encourage you to go support. And I, in fact, belong to a Ranger Association, and I support financially Three Rangers Foundation. Um, but there are a lot of other people out there that we're leaving by the wayside that we are not able to connect with the mission that we're doing because it's limiting and potentially divisive. So it's funny because Tony Maine, this is a ranger who parachuted into Afghanistan with uh, Steve Bannock and Joe Votel, October of 01, who was in on the Haditha Dam operation as an enlisted ranger who got out, became an officer, went back in, commanded a company, I think in the 82nd, and then served in and out of the Ranger Regiment several different times. And when I met him, he was the public affairs officer for the Ranger Regiment because he was being medically retired because of hearing loss. All these combat operations he's been on, now he can't hear for crap. And uh, and it's funny now because he has these his hearing aids Bluetooth to his phone. So when he walks around and he's talking to himself, 
you can't tell it's not like he's got little earbuds in like a, yeah yeah a iphone <laughs> so yeah, funny but um but tony he came to me a year and a half before he was retiring from the army and he said i've looked at all of the organizations out there that support rangers and i like what you guys do most so i want to work for you when i get out so we figured out a way to be able to hire him to work for us and when he started he said he said, hey, is it okay if I run, run Ranger Run because I'm a Ranger, Ranger's in the name, you know, it's kind of natural. And I said, yes, because I don't want to run it because it's a really big deal and it's beyond my capacity. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. To do it. Right. And, uh, and so he said, great. And he called me a week later and he said, do you have time to talk? And I said, sure. And he said, I would like to talk to you about the name. How committed are you to keeping the name Run Ranger Run? And I said, I'm not at all. We've been talking for a couple of years that it's limiting. And he's like, well, that, and now our phone conversation's gone now because I thought it would take me an hour to convince you otherwise. Because he, he had seen that if you're not a ranger or if you don't like to run, you probably are not going to be drawn to compete in it. So he has some buddies of his from uh, Ohio State where he went to college that have a marketing firm. And on a volunteer basis, they said, let us take a look at what you do. We'll come back and give you kind of an independent assessment and recommendation. And they came back to him and they said, you got to drop the name Ranger. You're using black and gold colors. Those are Ranger Army colors. You need to be red, white, and blue. You need to be patriotic. You need to, you need to shift that direction. And so if you look at the Gallifu logo on the first of the year changed colors. Yeah. So Gallifu used to be black and gold. Now it's blue and red. And Patriot Challenge now, replacing Run Ranger Run, has the tagline, Run Ranger Run said, your miles save lives. Patriot Challenge says, connecting America to her veterans. Because when you think about veteran isolation, when you think about businesses that have the idea that a veteran can't work there because you, you don't have initiative and you don't think outside the box, you don't have the qualifications to work here, there's a huge educational process that needs to happen there. And the more that we connect America to our veterans, the better that will happen. There are, there are a lot of people out there that want to do things for veterans that kind of do a little circle drill and they really don't do much of anything because it's hard to get involved and actually do something. So now our challenge is, okay, if we say we're going to connect America to our veterans, what does that mean? And how are we going to do it? Right. So there's a challenge as we develop this over the, the years. One is letting anyone take the azimuth check. Any, any person that's out there that wants to take the azimuth check can take the azimuth check. And you're going to get an immediate email that says, thanks for taking the azimuth check. Here's your results. And here is a link that you can look at some resources that may help you. So there, there's a video on almost every one of the 25 statements. So if Facebook stresses me out, there's a video that talks about things that you can do to mitigate that. If you don't have a workout buddy, there's a video that says, hey, Team Red, White, and Blue, or these other organizations, you know, go, go connect with someone and get a workout buddy. Um, we're not gonna, I'm not gonna spend time having an hour long phone conversation with somebody who didn't serve in the military, but we'll send them that information. And if they choose to go in and look at it, there's some really good stuff there that we're giving to veterans that they can use to help improve their sense of meaning and purpose. 
And then when it, when it comes to a veteran, then we give every veteran the opportunity to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with me, Tony Bryce, or Zach. And we're, we're, we're expanding how we do that. So we have a, a training called Monday afternoon with a, a little nonprofit out of Wichita, Kansas called Midwest Battle Buddies. And Midwest Battle Buddies provide service dogs for veterans. And they help, and, and they're not like dogs that are gonna turn lights on and off. They're more like, I think, companion type service dogs. But they go through a, a training session, a, a, not a session, but like a, a whole training period of time with the veteran to train their companion dog. And so it truly is a service animal. Um, as, as I connected with them, and I don't even remember now how we got connected, one of the first things that I asked their executive director was, how do you know what each veteran needs? Well, they need a dog. No, what, did the, what does that veteran really need? Do they have a budget? Do they feel life is worth living? Does Facebook stress them out? Do they feel guilt? All these things that are measured in the azimuth check. And what I offered to them was, you have your staff and volunteer, key volunteers take the azimuth check. I will get on a phone call with you and we'll talk about what we call the plan to be more gallant. It's the BMG, be more gallant. And so you have your azimuth check results. And in the area of emotional fitness, for instance, where it measures things like guilt, um, if, if you're not satisfied with your current level of emotional fitness, then how do you improve that? And that's your plan to be more gallant in emotional fitness. That's that that's what goes into that area. So we have those conversations with veterans. If we can get a group like Midwest Battle Buddies and I can train a half a dozen of their people to have the conversations, then when they get a veteran that comes into their system, that veteran can take our azimuth check. We have an agreement with them, so we provide the azimuth check results back to their person who then has the Be More Gallant conversation with their veteran. And then they give us some feedback so we can log the notes in the record so that we know that they're, they're following through on it. And then if they choose to, a month or six months or 12 months down the road, they can have that veteran take another azimuth check, and then we can compare a before and after. And we can see is, you know, what you are doing with that veteran, are you improving the, the things, the way that the veteran reports, self-reports on their levels of fitness. So if we, you know, think about, I mentioned earlier the VA, if the VA, if every veteran in the VA system took the azimuth check self-assessment once a year, then the VA could chart their path, their professional path, their financial management, their jobs, their networking abilities. They could track their social path, which is alcohol consumption, and it's finding ways to beat people that don't revolve around a bar scene. It's not letting social media derail you uh, on the spiritual side. It's being thankful for your life. It's, it's finding ways to volunteer and give back. On the emotional fitness side, it's lowering your levels of blame and guilt. And uh, what's the other? Oh, on the, the physical side, physical fitness is huge because what's the first thing that goes out the window when you leave the military? I don't have to go to PT formation anymore, right? Yeah. So, so you don't have a group at 6 a.m. that you're compelled to go get your role taken and then work out for an hour, that's gone. And so unless you happen to be really, really super disciplined like Stephen, 
and, uh, and, and you have your fitness plan put together, then what happens? In a year, you put on 20 pounds. The, the back injury that you have or your knee injury, that just makes it worse, which means you still don't go to the gym, which makes it worse. And if on that physical fitness side, if you can get hold of your nutritional plan, if you can find some workout buddies, if you can intentionally put something in place, then long-term your life is going to be much more satisfying and you're going to have a longer life going forward. Yeah, I absolutely love the <clears throat> just the whole Patriot Challenge, just the inclusiveness of it because there's a lot of veterans or anyone who wants to participate who is not physically whole like they used to be. So I absolutely love the aspect of that and just that... Uh, Two years ago, I got an email after Run Ranger Run was done, which is now Patriot Challenge, but I got an email from a gal that was in her 70s, and her grandson, I want to say, was in the military and had asked her to be on his team. And so she committed every day to walking two miles. And over the month of February, she lost 25 pounds. That's awesome. She felt <laughs> way better. I mean, she just, her entire, everything really in her life changed just because she started walking two miles every day. And she felt compelled to send me an email to let me know how much it meant to her that she was able to participate in this. You know, I don't, we don't have to have an event for you to go walk two miles every day. I'm glad that she did it through Run Ranger Run, but that's the kind of people need motivation. They need to be part of a community. Absolutely. They need to be, they need to be part of something that gives them purpose and meaning. And and for people that there, there's a, I'm trying to remember the philosopher that said it, but uh, he said that uh, most men live lives of quiet desperation and they struggle through their life trying to provide for their family and find happiness and they don't matter to anybody. That's, I think the reason that Black Lives Matter movement has been so big is because the people that participate in that feel like they don't matter. If they felt like they mattered, then you wouldn't have the protests, you wouldn't have the things that go on. Each one of us needs to feel like we matter. And But the magic thing about it is, you don't feel like you matter because somebody does something nice for you. Right. You feel like you matter because you do something nice for somebody else. Yeah, you gotta so earn it. So it's counterintuitive. Yeah. But once you get a community that is that is really telling people that kind of message, then, you know, that might, sometimes Pollyannish dream is that that just helps people across the country be nicer to other people. So everybody feels like they matter more. So with the, with Patriot challenge now and just gallant few in general, the, so we talked, we started talking about with how there's a lot of connecting veterans to other veterans, um, getting them matched up and how difficult that is to track and, and measure. And so we've got the asthma check now. So is there still, four guys coming out is there still is that still an aspect of gallant few the matching up with people yeah. oh yeah absolutely yeah yeah so uh, we try to track it it's still difficult sure but but i can only imagine <laughs> the the one of the biggest threats i used to say it was the biggest threat but there's a couple but one of the biggest threats for a veteran is isolation and that man or woman leaving the military needs to be connected with somebody like them because uh, I'm great friends with Zach, right? He's a Marine veteran, but that could have gone completely sideways because I'm an Army Ranger. And the day that I told him he needed to pull his head out of his ass, 
could have gone completely wrong because I didn't have the credibility to tell him that. Now I built a relationship to where it was more meaningful, but if a Marine had told him that immediately, then there would have been a level of respect between the two because of shared common experiences and hardships that would have made that message go down easier. So that's that's why it is critical for us to connect veterans with people like them. If you're a woman veteran, you know, odds are you've experienced some form of military sexual trauma or harassment, and you probably don't want to talk to a male veteran. Yeah. So a female veteran needs to be connected to that other female veteran so that they can be gain the benefit of the lessons learned from the female veteran that's been out longer. Sometimes it's not older because you could have gotten out early and now have all this transition experience and somebody else stayed in the military a long time. So you're actually mentoring someone who's older than you, but it's, it's the transition experience and the shared military history. That's very important when you lay that, when I connect two Marines together or two Rangers together or two pilots together, they all speak a language that's unique to that community and that reinforces the the transition lessons. So yeah, Stephen, we, we absolutely do still make those connections. We look to make those connections all the time, but we're not exclusive in them. So if I can't find a ranger in a community, I'm not gonna say, sorry, I can't connect you. I'm gonna look for an Air Force person, a Navy person, a, an anybody, because this is a, a great lesson that Nick Kumlatsos, who directs Raider Project, he's a former Marine Raider, he, he says, you know, we're all veterans, right? So we all signed up to serve the country. And yes, we each did our own individual thing, but we're still all veterans. And that community is a very, very powerful community. So there are, there are some knotheads out there that think that someone else's service doesn't equate to theirs because of whatever they did or whatever experience they had. The really, the really true quality people that I know from the military will always tell you somebody else did more, somebody else had it harder. You know, you talk to somebody that, that supported a ranger unit, they'll say, oh man, those rangers, they went out and they kicked in doors, I didn't do anything. And a ranger that kicks in doors will say, oh man, I didn't do anything, the medic. That guy that ran out there to save that person, that's the one that did anything. You talk to the medic and the medic is like, no, I didn't do anything. It's the guy that gave his life that did something. So there's always right. somebody, right? You can't. You just don't try to one-up your service. You you signed up, you served. Be proud of that and be connected with other veterans that also served. And as a veteran community together, let's set the right tone. And this, so if, I don't know how long we've been going, but like parting thoughts time frame. I've, I've been, I've talked about this a lot the last couple of months, ever since all the crap uh, has happened with national politics. What can you really influence? You know, if I go out right now in my front yard and I put a six foot Biden sign or a six foot Trump sign, is there a damn thing that I'm going to do to influence the election? Nope. No, no, no. What I'm going to do is I'm going to piss off the people across the street I'm, or somebody. Right. I am going to uh, I'm going to create an environment that is harmful for somebody else. We have the ability to, number one, there's, I, I looked at a diagram earlier today that has circle of control, circle of influence, and then circle of, of 
I'm trying to remember what the last one is, but like circle of concern is what it is. So your circle of control, what can you control? Yourself, hopefully. You can't control all of yourself because you can't control your health because you could get COVID tomorrow. You could get cancer tomorrow. You could, you can't control your health, right? You can work out, you can try to influence it. Sure. But the only thing control that you can thoughts. control is what happens between your ears, Damn it. right? You can control if you get COVID, Idiot. you can control how you respond to that. If you go through a divorce, you can control how you respond to that. But you can't control if your if your spouse says, I'm done, I'm out of here. You can't control that. Right. So so you, the, your circle of control is the circle that fits within your cowboy hat, Stephen, yes. which you're not wearing right now. But but that's it. Right. So then what's your circle of influence, your circle of influence? Those are the people that you can really reach out and touch. It's the people at work. It's the people that you go you meet at the gym. It's the people that you you go to maybe a veteran event with, but you can actually you know, not like put your arms around them, but they're the people physically in your community that you know. Those people you can positively impact. How do you positively impact those people? You, you look around and you see what makes your community better. Um, Jocko Willis, Navy SEAL veteran. He has a life philosophy that says it's my fault, right? What is it? Doesn't matter. It's my fault. If I walk down the street and there's a piece of trash there, it's my fault. I should pick it up. It's my fault the trash is there. Well, I didn't throw the trash there, but still his attitude is it's my fault. So then he's going to pick it up. If, if you don't say it's your fault, then what happens? That piece of trash stays there for two months because everybody else walks by and leaves it there. So what can you influence? You can influence and make your community together by saying, Whatever is not right here, it's my fault. And whether it's getting involved in your town or city local politics or school board or volunteering at the animal shelter, whatever you can do to positively impact, go do it. If it's outside of that and it's in the circle of concern, which has some impact on you because if the president raises taxes or lowers taxes or makes you wear a mask or doesn't make you wear a mask, you can't control that. It's gonna happen whether you agree with it or not, you know, unless unless you can go run and be elected president, then you can have a, a go at it. But other than that, you can't let that stuff. That's why the last question on our asthma check is Facebook stresses me out one to 10 because you can't control what other people post on Facebook, but you can control what you look at and you can control how you respond to what you see on Facebook. You have the choice to do that. And that comes down to Back to the STAR philosophy, self-training and response ability. We each have the ability to choose our response to any situation that's in front of you. Because if somebody cuts me off on the highway, I can say, I hope you have a nice day, or I can give them the middle finger. But I can choose which one it's going to be. Maybe they're on the way to the hospital because their mom has COVID and she's going to die. You know, and now I've just flipped somebody. I mean, so, right. so think about what can you positively do to impact in your community and then take those steps to do that. And the self-training part is that stuff doesn't come naturally, right? Our natural impulse is to flip them off because they pissed me off, not to, <laughs> man, I hope you have a nice day. Sorry about whatever is going on in your life. You have to train that skill. But if you don't train that skill, then what happens? then you do things that ultimately are not in your or your family's best interest. And you always want to do things that are in you, you and your family's best interest. Yeah, I think that's great. That's a great point. 
can we transcribe this whole thing? Because this is my next book. <laughs> oh, you're just you're just crushing. Yes, it. I don't I'm even want the whole thing to you. I don't even want to interject because you just are just. I know. I'm saying yeah here. every once in a while, just so people don't think I <laughs> am just just to, as proof that I'm here. Um, I, I don't think there's a, a better way to end it than on that kind of positive note. Um, yeah, and I just want to make sure we're clear. You actually kind of already answered it, so this really isn't a question. But just to be clear, Gallant Few, Patriot Challenge. I know we talked a lot about Rangers, but then right at the end, you pretty much cleared it up anyway. But completely available for all veterans, correct? All veterans, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, it's, you know, the the uh, we talked earlier about people want to be affiliated with stuff that's kind of sexy. Well, here's the sexy part. If what we do works with Rangers, then guess what? It'll work with you. So let us have a chance, take the azimuth check, go get involved with Patriot Challenge. It doesn't matter if you hear this and it's the 27th of February and Patriot Challenge ends on the 28th, go ahead and get connected and do your two miles, two days, but get in the community so then we can make sure that you get the information so you can be part of it next year. And uh, you know, the reality is you can't pull off a month long event if you just start on the 1st of February. So we usually open registration the 1st of October so that people can start getting their teams together and we can start organizing and doing the things that need to happen. But it is, it's incredibly important that every person leaving the military has the opportunity to transition to a life of hope and purpose. And that's Gallant Fuse mission. We want to have everyone to have the opportunity to transition to a life of hope and purpose. And Patriot Challenge gives us the fuel to do that. And the day that we get to a thousand or a million dollars that we raised, we didn't even talk about the the, the uh, Patriot incentive. I want to hit on that really. Yeah, fast, go ahead. That's a, that's a great point. Of course, the Patriot incentive is, man, we've been going for two hours. Yeah. And I told you you needed to have shorter. Yeah, you told me thirty <laughs> minutes. <laughs> Nobody's gonna hear this because they're all gonna stop listening. Like, well, if we honestly, what I was thinking is, if we have to, we might just we may cut it into two parts. But I don't really want to. I don't know how to split it, but I, segments. <laughs> I'm gonna make now, people so listen. The Patriot incentive is, it's a way for us to give back to the people that are participating. So it, the the mission of Patriot Challenge is connecting America to our veterans. If there's a scout out there that is competing for an Eagle badge, that that scout's project is to beautify a veteran memorial in their hometown, that is part of connecting America to our veterans. So if that scout puts together a team of people, does Patriot Challenge and raises $10,000, then that scout might get back $4,500 to use on that project. So if somebody has a project that supports the mission and they tell us when they sign up that they want to do this and the board looks at it and says, yes, this is good because uh, you know we don't want any, we don't want me being the person that decides that this is a, a, an appropriate project. So the board has to be involved in it. But after the first thousand dollars, that team can get half of it back to apply to their project. There is no other organization that does that. We want to raise a million dollars and we want to give half a million dollars back across the country in communities that are doing things to connect America to our veterans because we don't know what Kansas City needs because I'm in Dallas. We don't know what LA needs. 
We don't know what Albuquerque needs, but the people that are there do. So is taking $1,000 off the top and half of what they make fair? I say it is because we're doing all the work to put the event together. Yeah, and uh, I would agree with that. And you wouldn't have that money otherwise. Right. Uh, last year, we wrote the U.S. Army Ranger Association a check for $28,000. Wow. Because they participated in Run Ranger Run. And they're all in this year because they got they understand how it works. Yeah. No, I think that's incredible. When we, when, you know, when you guys were talking about it before, um, and let's be clear to everyone that is probably no longer listening, um, I'm like the junior person on the board, so I came up with none of this stuff <laughs> at all. <laughs> so don't, this is not another fly on the me. wall. Yeah, man. I literally just stand there and just sit there and I don't even have a roster when I'm supposed to have a roster. So it, it's, it's what I do. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think it's amazing. I mean, I think it's great. I've mentioned it to a couple of people. We have people in our community that are other rangers that own other, or not own, but run other nonprofits. And it's when I said that to them, I said, man, there's, you know, you, you should get involved. And there's, again, I, I get it. There's, they're thinking, man, I got, I got running this thing. I'm trying to do this thing for, for my organization. But when you say, Hey, you, it, you can do it for both. I mean, you, you can help account for you. You can help us, but you can also at the same time help your, your organization. I think it's a game changer. I mean, it, it really is this genius. Yeah, and that, uh, that allows us to develop tighter relationships with organizations out there that are doing great work to help veterans. And uh, it, it also, you know, like now with Rangers, I talked earlier about we don't want to be an organization that's handing out money. We really can't afford to do that. But if we get a Ranger that has a financial need, now we can hand them to the U.S. Army Ranger Association, who can surround them with a community of rangers and potentially give them some financial support. So if we right. were to partner with a Marine organization or anybody else, we could do the exact same thing with them. And, uh, and it just, when, when you look at the infrastructure to do an event like Run Ranger Run or Patriot Challenge, Classy, which is the payment processor, they, they have the donation website. When you sign up for your team, it's all Classy's platform. Mm -hmm. That platform costs us about $10,000 a year to run. Now, if you're going to go do a $40,000 fundraiser, you're not going to spend $10,000 for that. But if you can tap into ours and leverage that, you might be able to make that or more without having to put that much money into it. So it's a way that, that we feel can kind of raise the tide for everybody. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's great. Guys, this has been awesome. I appreciate it. I really can't thank you enough for coming on. It was a pleasure to meet you, and uh, I could probably listen to your, your story and you talk all day about it because this is just phenomenal stuff that's really necessary, and uh, it's truly selfless of you. And, uh, yeah, just thank you. I appreciate it. appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for doing this. This, this is telling your story is huge, and it's, it's something that veterans need to – learn to do there's uh there's an author uh named miller i want to say it's donald miller he wrote a book called a million miles in a thousand years and it's he was he's still alive but he was a, a very successful author that wrote books that people turned into movies and somebody came to him and said we want to do a book of, we want to do a movie about your life and he sat back and he went, 
my life is writing books that they turn into movies about people that don't really exist, right? So he's like, I really don't have a life. But what he did was he said, I'm going to I'm going to create my own story. And so he went out and he started intentionally starting to do things that would be story worthy of going into a movie. Sure. And I mean, the book is absolutely amazing because it talks about the power of figuring out your story, but then more importantly, telling people what your story is. Mm. So one of the things that he decided to do was ride. He wanted to ride his bicycle from coast to coast. And the way that he held himself to that account was he found a really cute girl and he told her, I'm going to ride my bike coast to coast. And so now he had, she's like, oh, really? And so she's interested in learning more about this. And now he has to do it <laughs> because he told her, right? But it, I mean, it all feeds into the story. But what's, what's so important about that is that not only does every veteran have a story that they need to tell because telling your story is healing in and of itself, but when you start telling your story, then you start looking for ways to make your story more enriched, more interesting, and then that gets you to doing more things that create more stories. So the telling your story through this, and I hope that you guys do this. I, I don't remember hearing it on the first podcast, maybe you did in, in a, one of the other ones, but take some time, like I told my story, good and bad, and just go through your story and, and tell your audience what that story is, because then that will make them want to tell their story, which, I mean, the, okay, this is the last, last, last thing, but Corey <laughs> Smith, after he did that run, um, the following year, as we're trying to turn Run Ranger Run into an event that lots of people participate in, I said, Corey, we're not helping enough Rangers. Ranger Rendezvous is coming up. This was, I don't remember if it was 2013 or 2014. I, I want to, I will buy you a plane ticket and a hotel room. I want you to go to Ranger Rendezvous and I want you to talk to your Ranger buddies and let them know that this network exists so that we can help you. And I pick up, uh, I pick up Corey at the hotel. And as we're driving towards Fort Benning, Corey starts getting pale and then he starts getting green and then he starts squirming in his seat. And halfway there, he says, I really don't feel good. I, you should take me back to the hotel. I'm like, are you kidding me? I just, I flew you here. <laughs> We're like 15 minutes from getting there and you want to go back to the hotel? I mean, what? And then it dawned on me that he was having the same thoughts that I had when I walked up to the back of the, the regimental change of command. And I didn't want anybody to know that I was there because I was the guy that quit and left. And so now they had all gone back on another combat tour and Corey became the run ranger run guy. And when he got there, you know, are, are they going to like spit on him or say, you're not welcome. You're not, you don't belong here anymore. And that's what was going through his head. He was taking it all negative. And, uh, and when I realized that I said, I bet you're a little concerned about what's going to happen when you, when you get there. Right. And he's like, hell yeah, they're not even going to let me in the door. It's going to suck. And I said, make me a deal since I brought you here, you walk in the door. And if at any point in time you feel uncomfortable, you just give me the sign and we'll immediately leave, no questions asked, I'll bring you back to the hotel. We walk in the door and he agreed. We walk in the door and there's a ranger, Freedom Hall is like, you put a football field inside of it out by the Lawson Army Airfield. 
all the way on the other side of Freedom Hall, there's a ranger that sees Corey and he's like, Corey! <laughs> and it, it, it's almost like a movie, right? They're running across the <laughs> hugging in the middle of the floor. And, uh, and it was, for Corey, it was amazing. And like three hours later, I'm like, Corey, we really got to go. But his grin was like about to split his face in half. And he didn't want to go. It was making him sick to go back there. Yeah. But by going back there, he healed. And that's all That's all part of that story. It's all part of telling the story. And the more veterans that you can get to realize that I feel like I don't belong, but you tell your story that says, but you really do. You just have to reach out and connect. Then that, that may save somebody's life someday. Yeah, no, we haven't told our story um, individually. We do have that kind of on the planning on the dock um, to get to that. So, and kind of why we got out and all that stuff. So, but we, we yeah. will. And it's not easy to talk about. It's not, it's easier for me to talk about than it used to be. But even so, I mean, imagine the, the, the hurt still. I didn't get a command B company 175. And that was, I'm going to talk about the dream job for an infantry officer. That would have been it. Yeah. The guy that uh, ended up taking command of that company, Jeff Bannister, was tremendously influential in the war on terror, worked behind the scenes with JSOC and a lot of super secret stuff. And uh, a week before he was due to retire as a major general, he dropped dead of a heart attack on a run. Wow. Wow. And, uh, and I talked to a mutual friend who said that the stress and strain of what he did for our nation destroyed him. Good Lord. And that could have been me. If I'd have had that company, I that I could have fallen into that path. Yeah. So Yeah, no, there's always a there's a path. And I'll say it, it's God. God is the one who helped us. Oh, I I believe that. So yeah. um all right, Carl. Well, uh really appreciate it. I know I think there's a lot of stuff going on. There's just some more interesting developments with Gallant Few that I'm super excited about in the future and addressing the systemic issues of uh, transition. Um, we're not going to get into that tonight, but I, I will definitely have you back on and we'll go over it. Yeah, bring me back. I'll be shorter next time. I'll, I'll, oh, this uh, was perfect. No, I don't care at all. Yeah, I think that, look, we're this podcast basically going to be the next Joe Rogan. <laughs> so Joe Rogan has like nine hour podcasts. So I think we can do two. We'll be fine. Uh, he makes a lot of money doing it. Well, but he much. didn't for a while. So. Yeah, it's but no, I really appreciate it. I didn't want to put a time limit on it. I just wanted you to talk and, and let people know a lot about you and then what you what you've done and what Gallant Few does. You know, I nobody's better at explaining it than you. Uh, so, yeah, um, thank you very much. Man, yeah, can't thank you enough for That's all you do. Thank you. All right. Well, this has been. The Beyond Our Service podcast. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, review, tell your friends all about us. This show can be found everywhere major podcasts are available. And if you'd like to reach out, please head over to beyondourservice.com and let us know what you think or find out how you can be a part of the show. See you next time.